America is an amazing country filled with wonderful people who do incredible things. But too often, the media and liberal politicians ignore big parts of our nation and the people who make it work. So I'm speaking with leaders and policymakers who deal with real problems every day. I'm Ronna McDaniel, and this is Real America. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Republican Senator Tim Scott, the first African-American to serve in both the U.S. House and U.S. Senate in our history. We're going to cover issues facing real Americans outside the bubble, from school choice to growing our economy to election integrity to his efforts on police reform. So thank you, Senator Scott. Can I call you Tim? Of course this, you can. For this interview. I'm so yes. excited to sit with you. I just admire you from afar, and I'm glad thank to have you. a chance to have this conversation. And we have something in common. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because your grandfather was a, a really big influence in your life. Jeez. Mine was as well. Awesome. And just can you talk about him a little bit? You talk about how he always brought the newspaper to yes. the family table. So when my parents divorced when I was seven years old, we moved into my grandparents' house. They had a two-bedroom house with uh, my grandmother and my grandfather had one room. My brother, myself, and my uh, mother shared another room. And uh, it was tight quarters, but there was lots of love in the, in the house. And my grandmother would you know, traditionally cook breakfast for my grandfather. We'd go to the kitchen table and he would sit there and consume a newspaper uh, thoroughly uh, in investigating and digesting every single page there was in that newspaper and for me and my brother it was like we, we knew that current events and it was really important because we always saw grandfather being uh, digesting the news and making it relevant and it was probably 15 to 20 years later when I found that he could not read at all but what he was doing for us was setting the example that readers are leaders, that you needed to be aware of what was going on. And he always encouraged us in nonverbal ways to take serious this privilege of learning. Did you ever address it with him? Did you ever No, I really him? didn't. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. He, was, yeah, he probably I, didn't want that, he, right? No, no. He was a very strong, uh, proud man, and I would never uh, have brought that up. But when we, I would take him to vote. Okay. And so literally he would ask me to come into the voting chamber and pick the, the names he wanted me to vote for for him. So it was completely, I was completely aware of it when I was uh, in my 30s. Mm -hmm. But until then, yeah, he could figure out, he could, like, we'd go to Sears and he'd pay his credit card payments at Sears. And uh, he could read Sears, you know, he could read JCPenney. But he, he literally could not read the words on the page. He could not put the sentences together. But he was the wisest, strongest, most powerful force in my life for many, many years. And I look back on my life and I know without question the good Lord used him in miraculous ways to teach me lessons that only someone who's uh, committed to you will teach you. And it really turned out very well. He also had as close to a photographic memory as it could be. So really? all the directions, every place that we ever went, he had to memorize it yeah. because he was never going to read a sign. So it was, I, I, I caught on after a while that, gosh, this guy has literally figured out how to compensate for his inability to read. What a life-shaping moment to realize that he read that paper or pretended yes. just to give you that example. You also talk about, you know, you were raised by a single mom. Yes. And mentors in people's lives. So and important. you have one that stands out from Chick-fil-A, which yes. we all love Chick-fil-A. Right. Oh, yes. If you um, don't, you need, you need to have your head examined. But it yes. is so valuable to have Absolutely. a mentor. And I think that's such an important thing that we can learn 
from people who did it for us, but also that we can be in our own lives. Can you talk about that mentor in your life? Yeah, so uh, John Moniz, the Chick-fil-A operator who became my mentor when I was 15 years old, my freshman year, I had struggled through high school. Uh, I had failed civics, the study of politics, which I think is- uh, You did? I you did, failed? Indeed. yes. Oh I, my goodness. Yes. I, I failed four subjects my freshman year. As a kid growing up in poverty, I, I lost hope in any real future. I was angry, frustrated about my plight, my circumstance, and what looked like a pretty dark future. And, and my grades reflected that. And my freshman year, I failed world geography and civics. Okay. Now, eight years in the Senate, I'm probably <laughs> not the only one failing civics in this town. I can tell you that without a question. I guarantee you're not. Yes. You're actually passing. Exactly. Many finally, others are finally, yes. yes, indeed. And I also failed Spanish and English. Really? My joke is if you fail Spanish and English, no one considers you bilingual, <laughs> no one. They all call you bi-ignant because you can't speak in any language. Uh, and so my next year, I, my, mo my mother encouraged me to go to summer school using some very interesting forms of encouragement. But I went to summer school, caught up with my class, and my sophomore year after my sophomore year, having passed everything with at least a B, I think it was, uh, I meet this guy named John Moniz, who was a Chick-fil-A operator, who starts teaching me some of the most powerful lessons uh, a business person can teach someone. He, he literally planted the seed of entrepreneurship in my heart. Uh, he taught me that having a job is a good thing, but creating jobs is a better thing. That if you have an income, it can determine your lifestyle, but if you make a profit, it determines your wealth and your impact in your community. And so you always wanted to be a, a, a wealth creator, a yeah. job creator. But John, just uh, he just saw something in me that I could not see in myself. And through his leadership and mentorship for the next four years, the way I saw myself and the way I saw opportunity was transformed 180 degree turn. And that for me is one of the greatest blessings in life is having someone come along at the right time and, and in the right way, teach you to take responsibility for yourself. Don't blame your circumstances or the, the fact that your father's not around or that your mother's working long hours. Really take responsibility for yourself and by doing so, you see the opportunities it's typically in the middle of the obstacles that are in your way hmm. when you see your problems you are actually going to uncover the promise of a better future by figuring out how to deal with those problems that are there those were just incredible lessons that I learned from 15 to 19 and then unfortunately for me John passed away at 38 years old Really? He's such a young fella, especially now that I'm But in look my at 50s. the impact he had. Four years changed my life. And what do you think he others. would think now, did yeah. he, knowing that what you have become, a United States Senator, and the voice that you have in our country? I think he'd be very proud, number one. I think he would see lots of the lessons that he taught me still uh, reverberating around this earth realm, so to speak, yeah. uh, even though he's no longer here. He would also, I think, smile not only because of what I've done from a political perspective, but how close his two sons and I still are. I mean, his, his two sons are like my brothers from another mother. Uh, they're both County uh, Brian and Philip Moniz. They're both uh, sheriff's deputies in Charleston County. Uh, I was in Brian's wedding, and, really? and uh, it's just stayed really close with the family. Janice, his widow, is, is yeah. We've we've probably talked last month, uh, so we I've stayed close to the family, and that's you know, thirty six years that's later. That's amazing. So the I, impact continues. I think that's great. So you come from that. You had that hopelessness. You you found who you are yes. and that way to change your mindset. Yep. and look at the success you've achieved. But in our party, you are one of 
very few African-American leaders, black leaders in our party. Yes. Um, and now we see the Democrats using race as a way to really divide our country. They say the filibuster is racist. Election integrity, integrity laws are racist. And they are really using this in a way that I think isn't furthering any type of understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've dealt with it. The things that they've said to you, the rhetoric you've had to deal with firsthand. Yes. What do you think about the state of race and how the Democrats continue to perpetuate, perpetuate yeah. this racist ideology I think on America? Yeah, I think there's two streams of consciousness that we should both uh, embrace and think through as we think about race in America. One is a political uh, statement or stream of consciousness on the issue of race. Race from a political perspective is, is being weaponized in a way that it's never been done before. And it's being weaponized by the left because they find it to be very profitable. And frankly, if you can tell someone who the boogeyman is, then you don't have to worry about that part of the society anymore. It's a very dangerous weapon, however, when you, when you weaponize it in the way that the Democrats are doing. Think about just last year when, in fact, we had a chance to pass police reform yeah. that could have helped in Kenosha. Uh, Wisconsin, when, when the uh, young man that was having a mental episode w was, was shot and killed by the police. If we had passed the police reform, we could have had the resources for training on de-escalation. But the Democrats decided to hold on to the issue of police brutality as opposed to the solution of police reform. A solution that was voted on in a bipartisan fashion, except the Democrats used a filibuster to block the very debate on the very bill that could have saved lives, period. Now, they say that the filibuster is a racist relic, a relic from a racist time. And think about the speeches given in the past on the filibuster yeah. by pres then President Barack Obama or then President Joe Biden, both espousing the virtue of the filibuster and protecting the uh, the, the necessary power of the minority party in, in, in Congress or in the Senate. And to have these same folks today talk about the racist filibuster, it's like they're living in an alternate universe where no one has the ability to go back three or four years and see what they themselves said when they were trying to protect the filibuster. And frankly, there was a letter signed by, I think, 30 sitting Democrats who all said, you know what, we love the filibuster, please don't change it when you're exactly. in the majority Republicans. And now that they're in the majority, it, 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 the cynicism and the hypocrisy knows no end, and yet they're doing such damage to the American people. Because they can't get anything done, and I think what you, you said is so true. They, they could have solved a problem in a bipartisan way yes. that's affecting our communities, and they chose to hold on to it for political purposes. But I think even more than that, to say the filibuster is racist, when they used it 327 times in 2020, yeah. you know how many times Republicans have used it? Twice yeah. since Biden's been president, and they used it 327 times. So were they racist when they were using that? I mean, the hypocrisy it, needs no to be called out. Yep. But I want to go back to your police reform bill because we know that racism is an issue in this country. Absolutely. We know that it is. Yes. And it's something that both of our parties want to, uh, at least the Republican Party, I think we want to talk about that. We want to have discussions. We want to make things better. Absolutely. Uh, but your bill really brought some common sense solutions to police reform. Tell me about some of the things that were in your bill that Democrats filibustered and wouldn't work with you on. If you think about the importance of body cameras, I mean, yeah. one of the things that we all know is that if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a video is worth a thousand pictures. 
you think about what that means, it means that when you translate into a video the uh, terrible incidents that we've captured, it's why we are having a serious conversation about race in this country. And without that video, we wouldn't have known that Michael Slager, the police officer that shot Walter Scott in the back in North Charleston, my, my hometown, uh, actually happened. We probably would have a different experience with the George Floyd murder. But here's what we also should remember, is that also caught on those video, video cameras is the good that the police are doing. There's a reason why studies have proven that the video itself de-escalates many, many situations around this country. So for the officer who's just trying to do his job, she's just trying to go home to her family at the end of her shift, that camera actually protects her as well. So if we were to understand the power of the police reform, not only does it protect the officer, it protects the, the citizens. If you think about the data collection, the data helps us understand and appreciate the changes that are necessary and how to provide proper training for officers. Well, if you're not collecting the data, you can't direct training. But if you don't have resources in a piece of legislation for de-escalation training, for the duty to, to intervene, for the best practices nationally with 15,000 departments around the country, or plus, all that was embedded in the bill. Uh, De-incentivizing the chokehold use in the bill, eliminating it from, from federal officers in the bill. There were so no-knock warrants, collecting data on no-knock warrants on the Breonna Taylor situation yeah. in the bill. So all these things were solutions. And the Democrats said, you know, there's an election coming. We don't want President Trump have, getting any credit for police reform. They were actually pretty ticked off, frankly. I know that's not politically correct to say, probably, but they were pretty ticked off with, with the First Step Act. Yeah. Yeah, because it came from a Republican. Absolutely. And, and so for someone who continues to demonize Republicans for being racist and, and insensitive to, to minority issues, I always ask the question, who was the president that made HBCU funding permanent? Donald Trump. Who was the president that took the level of funding for HBCUs to the highest level in the history of the country? Trump. Who was the president that brought minority African-American unemployment rate to the f for the first time ever recorded in history under 6%? Trump. Who brought it? Hispanic unemployment exactly. under 5%. Asian unemployment under 3%. Women. Women, 70 year yeah. old. So for the party that seems to have the burden of, of racial overtones always placed on it, we're the party that actually produces measurable progress in reasonable time. And what has the, the Democrats done in the last 25, 30 years? I don't know the answer to yeah, it. But the here's facts the, don't add up. They, it doesn't. The, the, the record, and if you look at the record of Republicans, especially you and, and what President Trump did, and I think about economic opportunity zones, too. Absolutely. Which you fought so hard to make sure was part of the Tax Cuts and yes. Jobs Act. yes. And what that has done for communities around the country, and you can talk about that even more, Absolutely. which is 75. taking these communities that were not getting the resources and helping invest in them and build them up. Uh, Literally, I was I, on Friday, uh, recent, uh, fr a recent Friday, myself and former Speaker Paul Ryan uh, and a number of business leaders and uh, Congressman Ralph Norman and Congressman Joe Wilson all sat at a table in an opportunity zone at a new tech startup uh, building that is attracting cool companies to provide real jobs in areas of the community that were blighted before. 
the, the, the person, the executive director of the, of the building and the program said he's getting calls from community members asking for training because they're technologically wow. illiterate. But they want to work at this new shiny building in the neighborhood, and we're working on that next iteration to make sure that the job training apparatus is close enough to the tech center so that they can work and walk in the same community. That makes so much sense. And Opportunity Zone, $75 billion of private sector resources being deployed around the, the country to the poorest, most economically disadvantaged uh, communities in this country, brought to you by the Republican Party and Common Sense. We actually work from a theory that common sense leads to common ground, and when you find it, you stand on it, and people's lives are better. We don't care about who gets the credit. We just care about who gets it done. So you look at economic opportunity zones, and I'm from Michigan. Yes. We did offices in Detroit when I was Michigan chair, and everything you're saying makes sense. You have the the ability to train, but the jobs next door. The other thing is school choice. 100%. Why do the Democrats continue to block school choice, something that allows kids portability yes. and opportunity to access a good education, which we know is the gateway to success. Well, Why no. should your zip code deter determine your future? It should not, without any question. The closest thing to magic in America is a good education. And the truth is that when you look at the results of school choice, you see uh, here in D.C., Opportunity scholarships versus the normal uh, public school. If you're in an opportunity scholarship charter school program, your chances of graduating from high school is about 93%. Okay. If you're in a normal public school in D.C., it's 50%. Really? Going to college, if you go to an opportunity scholarship program, you go to college about 90% of the time. If you don't, you go to college under 50% of the time. So that stark contrast exists in every community around the country when you take a look at it. And frankly, if you're, if you're actually interested in the improvement and the empowerment of people of color and you're not having a conversation about school choice, you're not really that interested. Exactly. It's, it's as simple and as it, that. And you know that disparity is going to be more, too. Because Absolutely. And my kids are in public school. Yep. And... We've been out of school for a year in a, in a blue state run by a Democrat. Yeah. No five-day-a-week in-person education. Mm. But that's happening across the country, and especially in minority communities where they did not have access to charter schools or couldn't go to private schools. And the disparity in our education right now, I think it's going to be the largest in our history totally coming agree. out of this pandemic. How many kids have gone dark and well, they aren't even showing up to the Zoom classrooms and thousands. the reading um, loss for third graders. I mean, I'm reading about that right now. Why are Democrats so insistent on failing our kids and supporting unions? Yeah, I, I think the answer is, is in, in, in the question. Labor unions spend a billion dollars funding campaigns, commercials, and poor kids don't have the resources, I guess, to be relevant and the spending apparatus of the Democrat Party so they get less attention. So when you have a choice between labor bosses and kids in public education, there's no question they're choosing the, the labor unions. Yeah, there's no question. And I it's think, tough. like you said, we are a common sense party yes. taking approaches that make sense when you talk about it. And I'm going to switch to election reform, Absolutely. election integrity. Yes. because. Once again, Democrats are labeling, we just saw this with S1, yes. these are Jim Crow laws, but if you look at Georgia or Florida or these laws that are being passed that ask for simple things like voter yeah. ID, Absolutely. getting rid of ballot harvesting, chain of custody, making sure that the ballot's not being compromised at any point. Absolutely. 
how can Democrats continue to use lies and misinformation to push against things that make sense to the majority of American voters? They try to make this seem like it's the 1960s and not, not 2021. It's yeah. part of the challenge that, the, that, that we have to face. In other words, the Democrats are constantly talking about what happened in the rearview mirror. Very seldom are they talking about the windshield. We, we ought to spend more time on the windshield of life yeah. than we do in the rearview mirror of life. I love that. But the Democrats spend all their time in the rearview mirror asking Americans to believe that what we're experiencing in the year 2021 is no different than what we experienced in 1961. Patently false. You can actually measure progress from 1961 to 2021, 60 years or so. Here's the other thing I, I would ask us to do, too, is let's take a – I asked this of the biggest financial institutions in our country during a banking hearing. I had Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, Goldman Sachs, I think J.P. Morgan, sitting at the table, the CEOs. I said, for those of you who signed the letter in opposition to the Georgia law, please tell me one thing you don't like about the law. And for 45 seconds, there was silence. I didn't want to interrupt them. Because you wanted that moment. I wanted to hear what they had to yeah. say. 45 Nothing. seconds of silence during a banking hearing. It's deafening. So let's just ask ourselves the same question. What, what would you not like about the Georgia law? Well, hmm, do you like early voting? I don't know if I like it, but it's in the law. Do, do you like drop boxes codified in the law that was not a part of the law before, before. the pandemic? Yeah. Mm, it makes it easier to vote. Do you, do, you, do you like having the ability to know who's voting? I actually like that. <laughs> that might be a good African idea. African-Americans <laughs> like it and Hispanics like it and the majority of population like it. Actually, voter ID is supported by every cohort of Americans in the country. So here's the question. Why? Oh, I know. That's right. I forgot. That's, I, there is one thing that is just deplorable. You can't have Republican or Democrat water. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, yes. I, darn. We're not allowed I mean, to give. You can't you know, do that. you got to have nonpartisan water. Of course. Why right. is it that I don't want a Tim Scott for Senate <laughs> sticker on the bottle of water that I bring to someone in the line? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's like meddling with votes. Who knows? But if you're thirsty, you can still get water from the line. You can still get water from a county worker. I'll be dag blasted. So, you, so maybe... Maybe that's okay too then. Exactly. There's nothing to actually dislike nothing. about the law. And on a phone call with, with leaders in the civil rights community, the first thing I heard was water. Well, like, well, well yeah. if you're going to compare water to the 1930s or the 1960s in voter suppression or Jim Crow South, give me a break. I'm an African-American, 55 years old. I knew that I was 35, but I'm 55 <laughs> years old, right? It ain't I that funny. Literally, um, I voted in the South all my life. I want to make it easier to vote, but harder to cheat. Exactly. I want to hold everybody to the same standard. There's nothing discriminatory about that. Nothing. And yet, yet, Democrats want people to believe, who have not read the law, that there's something insidious in our objective of making it easier to vote early, giving you more Saturdays to vote, and souls to the polls on Sundays for the first time in Georgia, in addition to water from someone who's nonpartisan, the ability to have a drop box, and 17, 15, whatever days of early voting. Wow. And voter ID and security voter measures ID, for absolutely. the drop boxes. I don't get it, but compare that to S1. Yeah. Or HR1, where it says, we're gonna make it harder to vote and easier to cheat ballot harvesting, same-day registration. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a fundamental 
transformation of and moving American from voting. The states the federal, federal government. Which is, by the way, which is not the most unconstitutional, efficient. actually. Yeah, unconstitutional, yes. but also not the most efficient way. Well, and the, keeping it more local is, is better for the voters and security. The government closest to the people is the government the people trust the most. Exactly. This is not even this is not even a flip the coin time. It's not so close I need to flip <laughs> a coin to figure out which side I'm on. This is easy. And frankly, here's what I wish we could do. Just give the American people a chance to say, do you agree with voter ID or not? Do you agree with ballot harvesting? Do you agree with early voting? I would guarantee you 99 out of 100 voters blindfolded without red or blue on a piece of paper would say, that makes sense, that makes sense, even that makes sense. They would. That doesn't make sense. And the polls show that. 100% of the time. But the Democrats and their media friends, like yes. you said, they, they distorted the water thing. 100%. It, yeah. And everybody was saying, oh, you can't get water. Right. That's part of not harassing a voter. Absolutely. And, and having a campaign attack them or harass them as they're in line to it's, vote. At that point, it's done. It's and they simple. need to have that security space. And that's very common across very the country. But. And by the Again, way, let's not talk about the fact that in 2018, 2020, we had record-breaking turnout. turnouts. But of course, everything's all about suppression. That's yes. not true. But you have Biden saying Jim Crow laws and lying to the American people. And th and that's what I think is so disappointing with this administration is he came in, he gave this inaugural yes. address, I'm going to work across party lines. And there were a lot of people who thought Biden's going to bring us together. Yes. He hasn't. And then Polarizing. you were tapped to give the response, the yes. rebuttal to the State of the Union. And first, I want to get a little inside baseball here. Right. How are you chosen to do that? What is the process there? You know, this is a great question. Um, I got a call from uh, Kevin McCarthy. Okay. And then I was later asked by uh, Mitch, Mitch McConnell, McConnell yeah. to take the worst job in <laughs> politics. They were like, we really like him. Like, if you liked me, you wouldn't ask me to do this. <laughs> but they both said. Because in the past, they haven't gone oh, so well. Terrible. You, you look it's, at the rebuttals, it's, it's a there's always, it's experience. a tough experience. I don't recommend it. You did it. great. But. It worked out fine. God, thank God for, for, for the good Lord uh, and, and, and a lot of prayers from a lot of people around the country. But the truth is that that, that was the process. It started there with uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell getting their heads together and, and choosing the person that wants to do that job. Why anybody would volunteer to do I hear people volunteer to do this. I'm not sure why, but I, I did not. And of course, President Biden did not appear to want to give a State of the Union address because it That's was right. like month, after month, it. month after month, after month, after month. It just sat there, right? And so then 10 days or so before the speech, they, they, they called and said, hey, seriously, dude, you're on. Mm. And at the same time, I went back through my former speeches to include the speech I gave at the RNC, thank you, yeah. uh, and, and fused together what I thought would be an optimistic, positive, forward-looking message from the Republican Party about who we are as Americans and why America is not a racist country. Even though we may have racism, we, I have been discriminated against, but the aggregate value of the American experience is one that is not colored so much by racism. It is colored by opportunity and empowerment. And yes, we have to deal with discrimination. Yes, we have to deal with racism. But no, it is not the most important characteristic of our country. We are a people who have fought, bled, and died to liberate people from our original sin. We have been more interested in the story of redemption as Americans as we have ever been in the original sin. It is one of the reasons why we have the greatest justice system yeah. on earth. Needs to get better but it is designed around this notion 
of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we want to judge all men because we, we believe they're all created equally, the same, and that's why she wears a blindfold. And so if we understand who we are as Americans, if we have the, the full picture on display of what it means to be an American, we will understand the American experience differently. But if all we have are the, the talking heads and sound bites and 140 characters reminding us only of a racist past that it, they literally go back 50 years to remind us of this past or longer, they never talk about the diversity in Congress today compared to what we speak into 1971. They never- Or more women in Congress. Uh, any in the form Republican of diversity yeah. we reflect. We never talk about the advancements in business, in wealth, mm -hmm. in poverty, in education. We don't talk about those issues. Well, you did, and your speech was so good. And it was Thank so you. good that I saw it, I loved it. Everybody in my family was calling, did you see Tim Scott, did you see Tim <laughs> Scott? The RNC actually said, we're gonna make an ad out of it. Yes. And we put seven figures behind it. Thank you for letting us do that. But Absolutely. there's a couple lines that really resonate with me. Yes. One is you said, you know, we're not against each other as Americans, we're, we're a family. Yes. And you said, our problems will not be solved by Washington schemes or socialist dreams. dreams. Yes. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think the socialist part of it yes. is so where the Democrat Party is going, and that is not a solution for our country. Well, the Washington scheme under Democrat leadership is a socialist dream. It's a utopian that can't exist because utopians don't exist on Earth. It's, it embodies the concept that man can be perfected and we can't. Yeah. We are flawed at our core. Therefore, what we believe on the right is that uh, the invisible hand of capitalism in free, in free markets gives you the chance to determine your future. What they believe is that this social contract, by aggregating all the power to Washington, D.C., we will make better decisions for your life than you will. That's offensive <laughs> and ridiculous, by Nancy Pelosi is going to make a better decision for my life than I will. And your kids. No thanks. Yeah. yeah. No thank you. And so, actually, Bernie Sanders. Let's say Bernie Sanders. Well, even yeah. worse, right? So, <laughs> well, actually, well, maybe equally as bad. Here, here's the here's the thing, and I, I'll simplify it. Washington schemes socialist dreams. That means that we must find a way to rightly divide the resources of this country. We need to know who to blame and how to redistribute the wealth of this nation. Or our side believes that you can't fight discrimination with more discrimination. We believe that we create opportunity and empowerment through adding to the pie, adding to the resources of this great nation and giving you access to that. That's what we fight for. That's why education School choice. is so important. That's why we talk about economic mobility. It's one of the reasons why when you compare their schemes and dreams to our goals and objectives that you can measure success as we just did under a Republican president for every single cohort, every single group in our country, you can see manifest how a Republican conservative agenda leads to economic prosperity and social realization in this country. And you can take a look at it from the left and say, it hadn't worked ever. Ever. And it's not gonna work this it's time. It's not working now. Not look at, at all. Look at, they're paying more people to stay out of the workforce than uh, then get into it. Absolutely. Look at the companies that are failing right now, the, the anxiety and stress around this country. And the Democrats think that what they're doing is right and they're actually hurting. Oh, it's, it's, this so is going to have a devastating impact. 
devastating. devastating. Devastating impact on people, poor people. Having, like I said, grown up in a single parent household, mired to poverty, here's one of the things I, I can tell you that you cannot simply redistribute the wealth of this nation and expect to solve poverty. Mm -mm. You can't do it. They're going to try it, by the way, but it won't work. Poverty can be solved by A, dignity in all work, B, empowering the individual and the family to make the best decisions with their resources in hand, and then C, having a system that leads to more and more uh, equity in, on the playing field. Equity, in my opinion, is not the racial equity of the left. Equity simply says that you have ownership in the American dream, and for most of us, that's, that's, that's a home. That's a house. Well, are we making home ownership more accessible? Under President Trump, by the way, we went from 41% for African Americans to nearly 47%. Yep. That's a 20 plus percent by increase. By pulling back regulation and but allowing more funding. It just was easy. Uh, he actually, I was there at the White House when we had the executive order he, he, he uh, issued to uh, HUD and, and Secretary Carson on making the process easier. Yep. We have proof in the pudding. They do not. And so I think the longer we go on, hopefully no more than another 15 or 16 months, the more the American people will realize bringing people together failed. Programs and solutions as well as policies that lead to economic prosperity and human flourishing failed. Yeah. Uh, solving the greatest crises around the world failed. Exacerbating the crisis around the world they're doing a pretty good job of it. Uh, creating more polarization and division in the country, yeah, they're doing they're pretty doing good that job pretty of that. They're doing that pretty darn well, yeah. yeah. We need to return, we need to go back to the future. And <laughs> back to the future for us is having an economic platform where we believe in the American people. Under the President Trump, we had the, the bottom quintile growing faster than the top quintile mm -hmm. in wages. Medium 5%. prices, medium um, incomes are going up. Absolutely. Today, what do we have going up? Well, the price of a home has never been more expensive. Mm -hmm. The price of lumber has never been Gas more prices. expensive. Gas prices are up 56% around the country, 30% at home. Appliances are up 20%. Uh, car insurance is up 17%. Milk is up 7%. The stables of your life cost you more in a time in which you can afford it the least. Coming out of a pandemic, the last thing you need to see is the type of inflationary effect that we're having. And now the small business has to compete against their government for workers. And then you take that back to your mom, yes. single mom. What does that mean when milk goes up 70%? What does that mean when gas is up? I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is the things they think they're doing to make lives better are actually creating hardships yes. for people. And that is the difference. They can say all these things, but if you look at the reality of what people are facing in this country, Worse. they are hurting working families. They right. are hurting single moms. They are hurting kids who need that access to a good education. And that is what our party stands for. And you are one of the strongest, best voices for that. Your speech, your rebuttal. I hope everybody goes and watches it. I really do. Thank you. And I think I want to end on this because you didn't talk about division and you didn't attack Democrats. You were optimistic. You had that windshield view, Yes. like you said. So I'm going to put you in the place of the mentor, yeah. your friend. Yes, John. John. Yes. What would you say to somebody who's watching or listening, who's discouraged, who has lost hope and feels like oh, our country's on the wrong track and how are we ever going to win again as Republicans or how are we going to right the ship because I love this country. Yeah. What would you say as a mentor 
and a leader in our party to somebody listening who needs that nugget of hope right now? Well, first thing I'd say is that uh, I, I have been through incredibly hard times. I, I've experienced loss and failure and rejection. And the good news is if you don't quit, you don't fail. The most important ingredient to, in, to success in my lifetime has been that failure isn't fatal if we don't quit. Don't quit on yourself. I've tried that as a youngster. That's why I failed out of high school almost. If you don't quit on yourself and you believe in your country, truly anyone from anywhere at any time in this country can rise beyond their wildest imagination. That's number one. Number two, if you really want to stand out in life, you have to stand up for those who can't stand for themselves. That's what our party does. That's what we do every single day. That's what good Americans do all around the country, Republicans and Democrats. They take a stand for people who can't stand for themselves. Right out of Proverbs 31, verse 8, and the NIV version, it simply says that we have a responsibility beyond ourselves. That's what makes America great. We are an exceptional people because we take on exceptional responsibility. Third, you have to hold on to your dreams. You have to believe that all things are possible, and if they're going to be possible, you have to go work for it. We don't give you stuff. You have to go work for it. So let me translate those three things from, to a political platform from my perspective. Number one, we empower people through education choice and the conviction that economic mobility is real. We do, through, we do that through understanding and believing in the Laffer curve. Lower taxes means higher production, higher revenues, and a higher quality of life. Second thing we do, we reset the regulatory state so as to empower people to have certainty and predictability in business so they hire more people mm -hmm. and invest in more, more equipment. When you do those two things, you actually attract people back to the workforce and your wages go up. The fastest way to see your wages go up is not by government fiat, it's by having a full economy. One of the goals and the brilliance of President Trump's economy is we got below 4%. When you get below 4% in, in, the, in unemployment, everybody's wages Everybody go up. Everybody was going up. And that's yeah. what happened. That's why the bottom 25% rose faster than the top 25%. And then third, we believe that by getting investors in the private sector to get their money off the sidelines, all things change for those closest to the margins. We did it through opportunity zones. So literally, those three things I talked about, those three principles of, of making life better and why we should be hopeful in this nation, we converted that into a policy platform, and I called it the opportunity agenda. Others call it common sense. Yeah. It's not original, but nothing on earth really is. And I will simply say this, a nation whose objective is to set captives free, to believe in their deepest souls, that all things for all people are possible. That's a nation you can be proud of. Oh, I love that. Well, I would never guess that you failed civics. Well, never in out. a million years after out. that. But thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you for your voice, your leadership. And I think the inspiring story that you bring, I know that people who listen to you feel touched and feel that hope. Uh, that they can achieve and do things. And I, and your story is so remarkable. So thank you, Senator Absolutely. Scott. Thanks for you. sitting with me well, and being on Real what America. It's good to be here thank with you. Thank you. God bless. God bless. I'm Ronna McDaniel, and this is what Republicans stand for. Join us next time on Real America. Paid for by the Republican National Committee. Not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. www.gop.com.